Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Have you ever been asked to do something at work that you thought compromised your morals? Now, it could be something big and dramatic, like in a movie where workers may be asked to hide a safety report, even though people are going to die. But it could be something more mundane. Maybe you were asked to tell your team that their jobs were safe, even though you didn't know that was true. Maybe you had to tell a client their work was going to get the company's best resources and you thought that might not be the case. Or maybe it was a bit different. Maybe you're a nurse and you've pledged to give your patients the very best treatment, but you don't think you're doing that. It may not have anything to do with your efforts, but you just don't have the resources. So you don't think you're living up to what you should be living up to. None of these are unusual circumstances. Workers are often put in positions where they don't feel comfortable with their jobs, don't feel comfortable with the things they're being asked to do, but they don't think they have a lot of options. So they end up wounded in a way, but not with a physical injury, rather with something called a moral injury. Now, moral injury is not anything new, but maybe we're at a place right now where workers do not want to put up with it as much anymore. Could be because of the pandemic. Maybe that changed us to some extent. Could be because there's a shortage of workers and that's encouraging some of those who are unhappy to just vote with their feet and leave. But it's a topic that is timely and I think it's worth discussion. That's why I have a really great guest today and she's an expert on this. Her name is Ludmila Preslova. And she's a professor in industrial organizational psychology at Vanguard University of Southern California. Now, as part of her work, she consults with companies to help them create inclusive and equitable workplaces. And part of that process is dealing with moral injury. She thinks that organizations need to stop subjecting workers to trauma, just some concrete ways that leaders can make sure that it does not show up in their workplaces. It's a fascinating conversation. Please stay with us. workplace where workers are not asked to make moral compromises. My guest today is Ludmila Preslova. She is a professor and director of organizational psychology at Vanguard University of Southern California. She joins me now to talk about her research and the things that organizations can do to keep moral injury out of the workplaces. Hello, Ludmila. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much, Linda. Well, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, I don't think we talk about this enough. I'd like to know how you ended up being the person who studies this. What's your career been like? Well, my career has always been focused on inclusion and belonging in the workplace. So my research interests have always included some aspect of diversity. Currently, it's neurodiversity. But you can't have an inclusive organization. You can't have employee well-being if you don't pay attention to organizational ethics. So this is really a natural extension of looking at employee well-being and how do you create cultures of belonging. Ethics really is an underpinning of that. It's interesting. Ethics as a topic seems to come in out of fashion every few years. And we're doing the Enron years. We heard a lot about it. Now we're hearing a little bit about it now. Again, let's just define this. When you say moral injury, what are you referring to? 
Well, again, if you start thinking about the original definition in the military context, people were talking about injury to one's morality versus the injury to one's mortality. Now that we're bringing it to the conversation of a general workplace that could be applicable to uh, teachers and firefighters and uh, just general office workers, we're talking about trauma response to witnessing or participating in workplace behaviors that are in contradiction to our moral beliefs. It also doesn't just refer to you know, minor things, like somebody looked at me wrong. It's uh, high-stakes situations where there's a potential that you can bring a long-term physical, social, emotional harm to others. So it could be cumulative, like if there is a constant accumulation of minor issues, you can get a pretty significant level of stress. But again, we're talking about something that can really be consequential for people, like denying people jobs or denying people appropriate health care or um, creating a system of constant overwork. So something that is a pretty significantly problematic behavior. Oh, well, let's get some examples of this. You mentioned teachers. What's a moral injury that a teacher might deal with? Actually, there is research that shows that teachers have similar levels of moral injury to military personnel, particularly teachers who work in impoverished and racialized schools. Because what teachers signed up for to do, the care they signed up to do, they're not able to. They're not given resources and opportunities to be doing the good they signed up to be doing, which is a type of moral injury, which is why uh, such high levels specifically among teachers. Similarly, in the healthcare, people are prevented from doing the good they signed up to do. That is a very significant issue. And then there are other situations, very high levels of moral injury among diversity professionals, because in many cases you have to deal with so much hypocrisy. And again, you're trying to do something, but you know that organization kind of means it, but not really, which is a really difficult uh, situation to navigate. Do you have a sense of what percentage of the workforce is impacted by this? Because I think everyone at some point is asked to maybe tell a white lie or is unhappy with something. I don't think we can do it across occupations uh, because it generally differs. But for teachers, for example, uh, 80% report observing a colleague or a manager to do something that's against the person's conscious, conscience and 45% report uh, having to do something that goes against their conscience. That's a high number. Okay, yes. so suppose somebody's in this situation, how bad is it? I mean, we talk about mental health a lot these days. How detrimental is this? It can be pretty detrimental in that people can experience high levels of shame and guilt. and then. Depending on individual history, prior situations, how long this has been going on, uh, people can 
uh, experience anger, people can experience uh, depression, and in some cases, it can become so bad that your physical health deteriorates, not just your emotional health, and uh, people can uh, engage in unhealthy ways of coping, such as substance abuse, and uh, in some cases, burnout is extreme, and in some cases, it can even lead to suicide. We've been talking a lot about the great resignation lately, people leaving their jobs for not necessarily better pay, but just better workplaces. Do you have a sense of whether this is part of it? Are people looking for more moral workplaces? In many cases, yes, there is a relationship between uh, turnover and uh, moral injuries. So people are looking for jobs where their conscience is not injured. So uh, sometimes people say, I'm looking for more meaning or I'm burned out. But that's because a lot of people are not uh, very familiar with the term of moral injury. And when I analyze what some people actually mean by burnout, in many cases, it actually is moral injury. Interesting. Yeah, most organizations would say we're not looking to create a workplace where people are injured like this. And we're doing the best we can, certainly in healthcare, they're not trying to create a negative impact. They just maybe don't have the right resources. Do some cultures, say, deliberately breed this, but do they have lower standards and it shows up? Or is it just something that happens when you have not enough of everything? Well, there's there are different reasons for why you don't have. You are really working in an impoverished setting and you might not have enough. In many cases, however, it's a matter of resource allocation and where those resources are allocated. And when nurses and teachers see resources allocated to things other than direct patient care or direct student care, uh, knowing that can definitely be pretty morally dangerous. Interesting. Okay, so what can leaders do if they are trying to you know, not have this happen and they want to understand the values of the people they're leading and be in tune with that. Now, where's the first, the starting point to, to stopping this? Well, obviously understanding the values of people and trying to figure out what is it that people value for some it's uh, balance, for some it's environment and trying not to violate those values. But the deepest thing is creating systems of transparency and accountability because it's very human to just kind of um, slide. Uh, Okay, I'm trying to do the job here. If I violate a couple of little things, it's all in the name of, you know, the greater goal. But that's not how other people see it. And to prevent us from doing something like that, if we commit to accountability and transparency, it is something that is able to hold us to our own values, even if there are other influences that may try to take us away from those values. Okay, so if you're trying to put together a program to say, look, I want to be in tune with my workers' values, uh, and I know that there's things like overwork or there's bullying or whatever in this, in this workspace, what are the things you should be doing? Because I know you've written about this and you said, look, it's not about giving out a spa card and saying, you know, go relax for a couple of hours, right? You have to go deeper than that. Well, ideally you need a systemic change because again, 
people get stressed out and they stop doing the right thing. So you need to create processes. Let's say your uh, recruiting and hiring has been biased. You can't just decide one day I'm going to be good and I'm never going to toss a resume because of the name or because of the graduation date. You need to build this into your processes. You need to codify this within your processes. You can't just decide, okay, I'm going to make a moral decision every day. That's actually extremely exhausting for people to make decisions every day. So uh, create a system that automatically prevents you from tossing resumes if they have an older graduation rate or a non-Anglo name or whatever. So build it uh, uh, into your selection system uh, that it is as fair as possible. Build it into your decision-making systems. Uh, Create, let's say, accountability again and transparency in decision-making because Company after company demonstrated that if if there's too much power in one hand, it's probably going to get misused. When there are uh, committees and checks and balances, human nature is not perfect, but you create a lot more uh, strength within your system to ensure that you're going to act on all those beautiful beautiful things that people say in their value statements. But value statements are not always translated into everyday operations. What we need to do is to create everyday operations. How do you distribute your resources? How do you enact, enact discipline? How do you constantly check where your employees are, and uh, are they feeling like they're living up to the values of their organization? You actually pay attention to that data because very often we collect the data but don't pay attention to it. So all of those structural elements that occur on various stages and on various points of decision-making in organizations create an environment that may not necessarily eliminate all moral injury or moral harm, but it can significantly reduce its occurrence if we are systemically honest, systemically transparent, and systemically ethical, which means, again, it's not just saying it because that's just never enough. We can say all kinds of good words, but how our um, selection forms and procedures are arranged, promotion forms and procedures, uh, decision-making about uh, resource allocation, staffing, uh, do we fall into a habit of just, oh, let's not fill this position and, you know, Margaret or whoever can take on a little extra work for another six months. So you need to structurally prevent this sort of thing to, uh, from occurring because uh, otherwise people are tempted to make unethical decisions. Yeah, that's interesting. Another thing that I hear is that workers feel, I guess, 
morally injured because they know things are wrong with their organization and they try and pass that on and they get ignored. And I'm thinking of Boeing and large companies like that where workers have tried to speak up and say they weren't listened to. What's the problem there? Is it that workers are not given a voice? Is it individual managers ignoring them or is it like sort of company-wide? It's all of the above because voice is only a voice if it's heard. So sometimes if you are, you know, submitting reports or speaking up and nobody is listening, you don't really have a voice if it's ignored. If you are punished or retaliated against, that's obviously even worse. And uh, and that's why sometimes we see whistleblowing, like uh, Theranos, right? So we see in many companies, uh, people sometimes go to extremes because they feel like something is something is wrong people are being harmed and i'm not hurt so after you try to talk to your boss it's not working you try to do something more drastic most people don't become whistleblowers but that's one situation or one kind of outcome can occur when people find voice in some ways which is why most organizations need to build in Again, a mechanism that said, okay, there were three mentions of the same issue in our latest survey. How about we look into this before we allow this program problem to grow and become unmanageable? And again, sometimes it's priorities and managers' own stress. Some of them have a lot a lot going on and it's just not where their mind naturally goes but you must again even create like if there's three mentions of something look into it is if um, the same employee is uh, saying something multiple times and his employee is actually observing something check if their observations are correct because they just might be and um, many organizations just don't have a system for it. And a lot of those you know, electronic forms go into the void and nobody ever looks at it. So that is a problem. And that's why when people don't feel heard, they try to speak up in more extreme ways. You work with organizations, right? Doing these, this research. When you point out that there are these issues are leaders surprised by it? Because I think most of them have good intentions. Leaders, again, it, it depends. If they can think of how they were perceiving the world uh, before they had a lot of power, they have a slightly different perception if uh, they're looking from this from the pure position of power. But for the most part, uh, they can say, yes, I can kind of see this. They just don't know what else is going on. And uh, they don't understand why we're doing those things. To which, again, the answer is transparency. Okay, explain to people why you're doing some of those things. Or check assumptions and check values that underlie your decision-making and that underlie how you allocate resources and how people think about those decisions. But most people are not surprised, and most people uh, would say, 
I know, I just wish I had resources. Or I know, I just wish the manager above me uh, would see it my way. And uh, we're just constantly told to do more with less and there is nothing I can do. It's surprising how many managers feel completely powerless in organizations. They might do some things within their organizations and try to keep their morale up. But many people say, yes, but, uh, you know, whoever is above me doesn't care about morale. So that is an often a pretty disheartening conversation that occurs on many different levels of managers. There's a little bit of focus right now in retaining talent, maybe a lot of focus with the great resignation. Are you optimistic that this will make a difference in organizations? It depends. It might. There are several ways um, I can see this happening. Let's say great resignation persists and uh, the tight hiring market persists. That is a simple mechanism of employee having leverage over employers. That fluctuates with the economy. And so it could be, okay, organizations are doing better and then they don't care. And then they're trying to uh, cater a little bit more to what people want. That's probably not the kind of change we want because this is uh, a constant tug of war. So just whoever has more leverage at the time. A preferable way for many employees for creating a different type of work environment is actually changing cultural values and making the cultures of overwork, for example, less palatable on all levels. So if you think about Nordic work ethics, uh, definitely work is highly valued. People put in a lot. People work hard, but they don't overwork they take two months vacation every summer and nobody's guilted over it. And uh, it's a different way to think about work. And uh, if you go and look at you know, or Norway or Iceland, you will, you will see the somewhat of a different kind of mentality. So if there's a longer term cultural change where people start valuing more of a balance and obviously no country is perfect but this particular kind of thinking seems to be a better balanced then we might have a more lasting change than just a great resignation tug of war and another thing that can be helpful is changing legislation the change in legis- in the legislation can actually over time in the chicken and the egg fashion lead to changes in attitudes because people just get used to the rules and that's normal. So there are multiple ways that we can make organizations healthier that uh, depend on several cultural, economic, and legislative factors. We'll have to see. Ludmilla, such an interesting topic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Ludmilla Preslova is Professor and Director of Organizational Psychology at Vanguard University of Southern California. Well, that's it for today. If you want to know more about Ludmilla Preslova and her work, please take a look at her show notes. You'll find some links there. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. 
Now, if you did like this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps people to find us and it'll help us to keep these discussions going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stoke the Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. <laughs>